0: I want to tell you uh, briefly before we get started, uh, just about that, about the kids pastor we're looking for. We're going to send out a survey. Uh, We sent it out around Christmas time and it got lost. (laughs) We we want your feedback on what kind of person we need as a kids pastor. There's a small team of people who are going to be doing the interviewing and some volunteers, parents, that kind of thing. So when you see that, it'll come from me. Um, if you would give us your input, I would really, really appreciate that. It will be super helpful for what we're going to do. Um, but today is week four of this series we're calling Me Too. And I want to invite you to stand with me, if you would. We're going to read a passage of Scripture together, and then we'll talk about it together. This is from the letter that the Paul, Paul wrote to the Christians in Ephesus, which is a city in modern-day Turkey. I'll read it aloud. You can follow along. This is the word of the Lord. And as you're seated, turn to your neighbor and say, you're one of the dearly loved ones and so am I. Just tell them that. They need to hear it. Uh, it's, worth, um, I've, it's worth pausing every now and again uh, and figuring out why uh, we talk about the issues that we do, the real kinds of issues that we do. Uh, If you've been around here, you know we don't typically shy away from talking about difficult subjects, and and from time to time people will say, why come you do that? Why don't you just something else they think ought to happen? And I think it's worth pausing, especially about this subject that we're going to talk about today in this whole series, uh, and and tell you why we do that. I think that's important for you to know. Um, The first reason that we do that is the name of our church. We're Real life. <laughs> uh, we want to talk about real life. W- or the name of our church is not fake life, um, religious life, pretend life. Uh, it's real life. And we want to answer the questions that people are actually asking. Sometimes, maybe this has been your experience. Sometimes in church world, churches have a tendency to answer questions that nobody's actually asking. And we want to answer the questions that people are actually asking because we want you to learn to follow Jesus. The word for that in the New Testament is disciple. We want you to be a part of discipleship, which means learning to apply your faith to your everyday life. We want you to know how to do that, and so we want to talk about the real issues that you're facing. And, And probably the most important reason that we do that is because that's what Jesus did. If you uh, read the words of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you dig into the cultural context surrounding what Jesus said, what you find is that Jesus was inviting people to follow him, that is to be a disciple, to learn to apply their faith to everyday life, and he did it using the issues of the day that people were facing. And I I don't, for any second, pretend to be uh, like Jesus, I am by no means a perfect example. I am a living example of someone trying to do my best to follow Jesus, and so I hope you can um, see that and use that as an example for your own life. Um, But today, we're going to talk about an issue um, that you probably don't want to hear about. (laughs) And as as I talk to you about this, I'm aware there's probably two... Um, almost opposite groups of people in the room. One group, when, when I tell you specifically what we're going to talk about, you're going to go, you're really not supposed to talk about that in church. Uh, there's another group that might might be on the opposite side of um, the issue, and you might say something like, well, I think the church has had this issue wrong for a really long time, and it and, and if you're of this frame of mind, you might say, I, I wish the church would update their thinking on this. They'd have kind of the modern way of thinking about these things. And the reason I want to talk to you about this is, and I, I hope, you'll, hope you'll stick it all the way out. When, you get, when we get into the, the depths of this and you're, you're like, you know, I could just go to the bathroom right now and not have to hear the rest of this. <laughs> I want to invite you to stay. I want to, I want to encourage you to give this a full hearing because what I hope happens is even if this is not your lived experience, what I'm going to describe for you, that you'll say, you know what, maybe I haven't always gotten this right, but I would certainly like my kids to get this right or my grandkids to get this right. Uh, because what we're going to talk about is what the Bible calls sexual immorality. Now, let me, let me kind of put a frame um, if I can, around that so you can kind of get an understanding of what I'm, what I'm trying to say here. When the first Christians uh, did what they did, lived the way that they lived, uh, they lived in contrast to the culture around them, specifically with regard to the issue of sexuality and how it was expressed the Greek and Roman world of the the first century was probably more saturated with sex and more um, promiscuous, if you will, I don't know, just whatever goes, than our day is. And the Christians, using this issue, lived such different lives that they transformed the culture. So the culture around them kind of had this view— we're going to be promiscuous with our bodies and stingy with our money. In other words, we're going to do whatever we want. And the early Christians, uh, from the year of Jesus left the disciples, that would be 35, 30, 40 A.D., something like that, to the year about 312 when the Emperor, Roman Emperor Constantine signed what was known as the Edict of Milan, legalizing Christianity and making it the religion of the empire. In that time, the church didn't have any buildings. The church didn't have really any formal way of uh, connecting or or doing what it did. And it went from being about .005% of the population after the death and resurrection of Jesus in the beginning of the Christian church in that almost 300-year time span to being about 50% of the population and many people who study these things, they say the reason it happened is because of the way Christians treated their bodies and their money. That's what made the difference. So the culture was promiscuous with my body, stingy with my money, and the Christians were the exact opposite. I'm absolutely promiscuous with my money, and I'm incredibly stingy with my body. Now we're going we're gonna to unpack what I mean by all that. Um, the other kind of frame that I want to put around that is that The way that Jesus talked about sexuality and talked about sexual immorality and talked to people who were um, doing what we would say is not the right way to go about expressing your sexuality, those people actually changed. They, They took what Jesus said and they actually became different people as opposed to the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day who were probably more religious than Jesus, They had kind of, in a way, the same kind of message. Jesus was talking out of what we know as the Old Testament, and so were they. And they had kind of the same message, and no one responded to their message. No one in that kind of a lifestyle responded to their message. And I think the reason is, is because Jesus put the value on the person, the worth of the person. And all the Pharisees could see was the rule that you were breaking. Have you ever been around religious people who all they do is tell you the rules that you're breaking? It's not very appealing, is it? But Jesus, in his message, had a way of saying, you're so valuable, you're worth so much, you have so much dignity, maybe it would be better if you lived a different way, and people, people followed that. And then kind of the, the, the third frame I'd like to put around this is the reason that we're even having this Me Too conversation as a, as a broader culture is because how we view sex itself is really a mess me too is really a symptom of what's going on not the cause it, it would be like if you went into the doctor uh off, doctor's office and you had a compound fracture of your your femur bone you know this bone right here in your leg and you know a compound if it's a really bad compound fracture it's sticking through your leg when you go to the er <laughs> And you know, when you, when you go to the doctor now at the ER, they, they ask if you're in pain, they say, what's your pain scale? And they give you this 0 to 10 thing with smiley faces. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? And you go, oh, it's a 10. And if the doctor said, oh, you've, you've told me your symptom is pain, here, take this Tylenol and call me in the morning. You would say, wait, 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 I got this bone sticking out of my leg. Are you not going to do something about the cause of my pain? No, 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 we're just going to deal with the symptom. So if all we ever did was just talk about the me too thing, we would just be dealing with the symptom and we would never bring a cure because we're not actually getting to the cause. And so we've got to understand beyond the pain that might have happened, what, what is a leg for? What was it made to do? What's the good uses of it and the not good uses of it? And So we're going to talk about that. Now, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to pray for me because I'm kind of scared talking about this right now. (laughs) And uh, we're going to pray, and we're going to ask for God's uh, help and intervention here as we jump into this, okay? Let's pray. Um, God, we walk into the room uh, around a subject like this with all kinds of thoughts, fears, expectations, hurts, and we really need for you to speak to us in the way that you do, in a way that sees us as a person, in a way that sees our value, and sees where you want to take us. And so, Lord, as we think and talk about this together, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight because you're our rock and you're our redeemer. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So here's what Paul does. He, he jumps right into this and he tells us that we are to follow God's example as dearly loved children. Now, when you follow someone, you are going where they are leading. So I'll, um, I'll see if I can draw this. I went to the Stickman Academy of Art. And so I'll see if I can draw this in a way that makes sense here. But you're, you're basically going where someone goes. You're going in the direction that they're going. I don't know if you can see over there. Michelle, there you go. You're following And Paul says that what we're to do in all of our life is that we're to follow God's example. Well, what's God's example? What kinds of things does God do? The prophet Micah in the Old Testament, in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, one of the probably more famous sayings from the Old Testament, says what is it that God requires of you is that you would do justice and that you would love mercy and that you would walk humbly with your God. So in other words, where God is going is justice, mercy, mercy, and humility. So we're to follow God's example in those kinds of things because that's the direction uh, that God is going. And, and Paul is saying, you know, in all of our life, we're to follow God's example. And in, really quickly, he zooms in on sexuality. And he says, but there's a context for following God's example. And the context for following God's example is that you would do it as dearly loved children. Dearly loved children. So Um, It might look something like this if you were to picture it. Here's a stick person. For those of you who can't see my amazing artwork, a stick person inside of a heart. Uh, let Let me unpack that a little bit for you when you think about the fact that you're dearly loved. That means that you can now operate from inside of God's love for you rather than outside of god's love trying to earn it in other words you do things now from the fact that god loves you not in an attempt to earn god's love for you do do you see the difference you're a dearly loved child if you can if i could get inside of your psyche if i could get inside of your thought life if i could get inside the, the psychological motivations of your heart I would go in there and I would, I would implant the message from Jesus that God says, I love you, I love you, I love you. You're a, you're a dearly loved child, Paul says. And so that's the context for then following God's example. And so Paul goes on, he says, and so what we're to do is we're to walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, in the English language, we have one word to describe love. I love ice cream. I love my wife. I love barbecue. I love Nebraska football. We have one word. Uh, The Greek language is a bit more nuanced at points and has four words to describe love. Uh, One word is the word eros, or eros, E-R-O-S. It's the root of the word erotic. And it's the kind of love that comes from desire, Uh, hunger. That's not the way of love that Paul tells us to live. That's not the dearly loved love that God loves us with. Uh, The next kind of love is phileo love, P-H-I-L-E-O. Phileo, it's where we get the word Philadelphia. It's a brotherly or sisterly kind of love. You and I uh, had experiences together, we went through the same classes together, uh, we served in the military together, and we formed a bond based over our mutual task or uh, place in life, and so we became bros. Sup? <laughs> That's not the kind of love with which God loves you. Not, it's not a, we're just, I just happen to have an, an affinity with you. The next kind of love is what's called storge, S-T-O-R-G-E, would be the English transliteration of that. And it's a familial love. It's the love that a parent has for their specific child. I love my children. I love them from the moment they were born. I love them with everything that is in me because they are my children. And I don't love your children the same way. (laughs) No parent does. Why? Because we have this, sum, this, this bond that happens between a parent and a child that has some measure of exclusivity to it. That's not the kind of love with which God loves you. That's not the way of love that we're called to. There's a fourth kind of love, though, and it's agape, A-G-A-P-E. It's agape love. It's the kind of love that sacrifices. It's an other-centered kind of love. It's a love that puts someone else's need above my needs. How does God love you? How dearly loved are you? You are in a dearly agape child. That's how God loves you. What's the way of love that we're called to? The way of agape. That's the way that we're called to. It's a sacrificial, other-centered, others' needs first kind of love. We're not called to love people based on desire. We're not called to love people on the basis of affinity. We're not called to love people because we're ha- we happen to be in the same family. We're called to love people, period. And, and so Paul says, as an example, he says, how you The way of love, you love as Christ loved you and gave himself up for you as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is giving us an image that is hopefully immediately recognizable. He's saying, "When you, you want to know what sacrificial agape love is like, you look at the cross. You look at the cross of Jesus. How Jesus, at no thought to himself, laid himself on a cross... For the sins of the whole world, had no thought for his own safety, thought only about you. That's the kind of love that God has for you, has a sacrificial, other kind of love. And, and Paul says it's like a fragrant offering. He's reaching back into the memory of the Jewish people in the Old Testament when they would do the sacrificial system, and, and one of the offerings was a, an incense offering where you would, you would have incense that would go up, and, and it was meant to be all of your senses in worship, so you would go, when I worship God, it's a pleasant aroma. And, and when you would come and you would, they would burn the offerings of the lambs and the goats, you would smell like barbecue. I love, I love barbecue. I, I will tell you, I've lived in the places in the country where there, are, there is good barbecue. And I will tell you a secret. If you go into a barbecue restaurant and when you get out of your car in the parking lot, you cannot smell the barbecue. Get back in your car and drive away. They don't know what they're doing. <coughs> it's that aroma that draws you in. And Paul's saying, Jesus on the cross is this beautiful aroma of the kind of love that God has for us. And it's the example that we're to use in the way that we treat and interact with other kinds of people. This is, first though, you got to understand what Paul is saying. This is the kind of love God has for you. He's not asking you to work this up and then he'll love you. He's saying he loves you with agape love first. And because he loves you with agape love first, then you can have the resources to learn to love someone else the same way. So he goes on, verse 3. He says, so because of all this, among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality. Now what what is that? Uh, The word sexual immorality there is the word, uh, the Greek word, pornea. And the word uh, pornea comes from, I mean, you don't, You don't need me to tell you what word has that as its root. Uh, It has a a, a meaning, a a root meaning of uh, to sell something. Something's for sale. The Greeks had a saying uh, about their sexuality, and they would rib each other, and they'd go, you know, the body for food and the food for the body. I mean, when you're hungry. (laughs) Hugh Hefner would have fit in perfectly in a culture like that. And, and so there was an attitude that pervaded especially men's outlook that said, now who can I use today? Let me give you a definition of what pornea is. Pornea is using someone sexually without committing to them. Now, this is where, for those of you especially that say, you know, I, I, wish, I wish Christians would adopt an a, a updated view on this subject, um, that the Christian view of, of sex seems to be wrong. I'll just tell you the Christian view of sex, and then we'll, we'll unpack it a little bit. And, and it goes like this, it's, it's very exclusive, and, and it probably will rub some of you the wrong way, but it's this, is that sexual, sexuality is meant to be expressed between a man and a woman in a covenant marriage and it's celibacy for everybody else now you may say well that i I, I don't like that okay or i think that's backwards okay If you say, though, it's backwards and and the Bible teaches something that's backwards, you're totally misunderstanding the point. Because in that day of early Greek and Roman culture, this was a massive step forward for people who were incredibly vulnerable. Because if you were a man, you literally could go and use anybody you wanted. And the woman had no right to really say anything about anything. and, And you could just use a woman. And so the Christians came along and said, no, 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 no. Everybody has value and dignity. You can't just use somebody for your pleasure and then throw them away. This was a massive amount of protection that was provided in that day for the woman who was incredibly vulnerable. In fact, uh, the Greek view of, of marriage was that a man would marry a woman so that he would have children. And then on the side, he would have a mistress who he would go to for pleasure. And No one looked at that and thought that was a double standard because at the same time, the woman that he was married to was expected to have fidelity to him and never cheat on him. So when the Christians come along and go, wait, 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 wait. That's using somebody without committing to them, and that doesn't work. That makes the situation worse. It was a massive amount of protection that was provided to the vulnerable person. I hope you can see that. Scott McKnight, who's one of the the leading New Testament scholars, I I follow what he writes and Um, in the world. He says that when you, if there were a hyperlink on the word pornea and you were to click the hyperlink, where it would take you would be to Leviticus chapter 18 in the Old Testament. And if you were to go read that this afternoon, you would find that there's just a long list of things like this doesn't work, and this doesn't work, and this practice doesn't work, and this practice doesn't work, and neither does this one. And then you get down to the very end in, in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 28, and it says, if you defile the land, the land will vomit you out. In other words, you can't go against the natural way of things without there eventually being consequences. And here's what I would suggest to you the Me Too thing is the Me Too thing is the land vomiting out a disgusting practice. Notice it's not even religiously motivated, it's just people realizing wait a second. You can use and abuse a whole class of people? That's not right. Why? It's just exactly what the scriptures say would happen. Sexual immorality means that sex outside of marriage is not the way to go. So Paul says there's not even to be uh, there's not even to be a hint in other words it, it would be improper for people who follow Jesus it would not be helpful or in line with people who say they follow Jesus to, for people to hear that this kind of thing goes on on among people who say they follow Jesus And that there shouldn't even be a a hint of impurity, which is a word that means um, uncleanness in any way, sexually related, morally, or greed, which is I take more than is owed to me. And 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 then Paul says this would be improper, is the way the English translation says it. it. A better word might be fitting or suitable. If you know the Old Testament story of King David, King David, when he was just a boy, he went to see his brothers in a battle, and he met with King Saul, and he said, I'll go fight Goliath the Philistine, and Saul brought him in and said, David, here, try on my armor. Now, if you know that story, Saul represents what God is not blessing, and David represents what God is blessing, and so Saul says, here, here's my armor, put it on, and it was too big. It didn't suit him. It was ill-fitting for the task. And David said, y- "You know, I, uh, I, I can't, I can't make this work. This is what Paul's getting at. It- it- it's like when I was a kid, and I would go into my dad's closet, and I would put my feet into his giant shoes for my little feet, and then I would clop out into the living room. You know, it's really cute when you're eight. It's terrible when you're 40. <laughs> and Paul says, it- "It's just not. It's just not. It's just not fitting." just doesn't work makes things uncomfortable so i I can't we don't have time to explore everything when you double click pornea in leviticus 18 so let me let me focus on one that i really think keeps people trapped in the sex is about using other people cycle and, and let me do that. Now, let me, let me just pause for a second and tell you, we're going to, one more week on this series, next week will not be nearly as heavy. You will walk out much more excited. We're going to take communion, so stay with me, okay? So here's, here's, here's though, what I want to, here's what I want to, here's what I want to talk about for the remainder of our few minutes together. I want to talk to you about living together. Because that's pornea. Now, I know that may be hard. Uh, I just want you to know that I care about you. And so I'm willing to tell you something difficult. And if you're not dating, I hope you'll use this as a guide and go, whoa, yeah. And if you are dating, uh, you, you'll say, you know what? I don't want to participate in the user culture anymore. Think about this. Remember, what's the, what's the definition of pornea? It's using someone sexually without committing to them. Now, when you live together, usually the arrangement goes, like, I'll pay for this, and you pay for this. Now, doesn't that mean you're paying for sex? Her. Now, let me, let me tell you some common reasons I hear that people, uh, that peop- I've heard people give when they say, you know, I don't want to get married, or I have my reasons for not getting married. And, and uh, let, me, let me give you one. One of them that I hear pretty frequently is, Well, it's just a piece of paper. I have a drawing of a piece of paper there. Now, what if, just stay with me, what if everyone operated by that line of thinking? What if you went into your doctor's office, and uh, maybe it was the first or second time you've been there, and the doctor started asking you just some questions you've never heard doctors ask you that just made you say, I'm not sure this person knows what they're talking about, and they... Then offered you a diagnosis that seemed really, really odd, and you Googled what they said to you, and you're like, well, that's not right. And you said, uh, hey, and you looked around on the wall, and you didn't see the, the diploma that says, you know, MD from such and such medical school. And you said, hey, did, did you go to medical school and get a doctor? I mean, are you a doctor? And he's like, I, I don't need that. It's just a piece of paper. Or if you had an electrician come into your house, and you said, hey, I got this short. And he comes in, and he pulls the wire, and he starts yanking all the wires and pulling all the drywall out. And then he does all kinds of things. You're like, what is this guy doing? And, and you say, hey, did you, did you go to, like, were you an apprentice? Do you have a, an, electric, an electrician's license? And he says, I don't need that. I mean, that's just a piece of paper. Every year, uh, the Church of the Nazarene, the, the, the denomination that we belong to, sends me a little card, and it's a an affirmation of my ordination as a pastor, um, and, and it, it says on there, you know, Scott Marshall is, you, you know, a, a minister of the gospel in the Church of the Nazarene for 2018, and I put it in my wallet, and I show it at hospitals and stuff. And, and it, it affirms the document that's on my wall that I could show you in my office that says that I was ordained, which meant that I went through a whole process of learning to understand the scriptures and learning to lead other people and learning to care for people and, and to do it as best as I can. Not that I do it perfectly. But what if, what if I didn't have that? I'd never been through that and I gave you all kinds of crazy advice and I gave you all kinds of stupid opinions and there was just my opinions that weren't very formed and didn't have any basis in reality to them. And, and I just said, well, I don't need all that stuff. It's just a piece of paper. Or let me, let me try this one on you. <laughs> you have a car, and I like your car. And I say, can I borrow your keys for a second? I get in your car, and I drive away, and I don't come back. And you call me up, and you're like, hey, what are you doing? And I'm like, well, that's my car now. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it is. And you say, well, I have the title. It's my car. And I said to you, that's just a piece of paper. here's what the paper symbolizes here's what I'm getting at I I know I'm poking at you the paper is our way of saying collectively that there are some important steps to take to get to a point of growth and maturity and if it's just a piece of paper why would you let that stop you I have the image of a football team, a high school football team, at the beginning of the season, and the cheerleaders are all standing on each other's shoulders, and they're holding that giant piece of paper, and then the team busts through the paper. When they get to the paper, do they bounce back because the paper is this impenetrable barrier? No, they break through it. Why? Because it's just a piece of paper. Don't let it hold you back any longer. Another one that I often hear is, uh, well... What we need to do is we need to try things out first. It's like a big giant question mark uh, is over the whole entire relationship. And let me tell you what is usually operating, the the, the understanding about how commitment works is operating uh, when someone says, you know, well, we, we need to try things out first. What they're usually saying happens is that I I get to the point, I grow to the point where I am able to make a commitment. And I am waiting till I feel, however subjective, like I'm ready to make that commitment, and then I'll make that commitment. But that's not actually how growth works. Growth works by making the commitment, and then you grow to the point that you can keep the commitment. About 10 years ago, when I told my wife that I was going to run a marathon, she, she said, ha, 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 about like that. So what I did it was in one year, I signed up for three different races. I signed up, I committed, I paid the money for three different races. I paid for a 10K, a half marathon, and a marathon. So 6.2 miles, 13.1 miles, 26.2 miles, all in the same year. And they were kind of staggered. I remember uh, when I ran the 10K, I'd never run that far in my entire life. I remember crossing the finish line. I'd done a bunch of training because I'd committed to it. And I said to myself as I crossed the finish line, There is no possible way I can run twice this distance. But I'd committed. And so I trained. And I remember crossing the finish line when I ran that half marathon and saying to myself, There is no possible way I can run twice this distance. But I'd committed. And so I train, and I cross the finish line four times on four different marathons. Why? Because commitment works by making the commitment, and then it forces you to grow. I, I think what's operating behind this understanding is the idea, well, you know, I, I want to make sure that the feelings of romantic love don't go away. And so I'm going to stay this, stick this out, and if they go away, then I'm out of here. Romantic, listen, romantic love is the spark that starts the engine. It's committed love that makes a marriage last. Romantic love is a roller coaster. It goes, it comes, and it goes. And when you wake up to someone and their breath smells, and they don't look pretty, and they're irritable, and you don't really like them, that's when you know you have something that will last because you'll still say, I love you anyway. <laughs> I love how Ruth Graham, the wife of Billy Graham, said it. She said, you know what? I've never considered divorce. Murder, yes, but never divorce. <laughs> What's she saying? I made the commitment, come hell or high water, I'm in. listen every one of us wants someone else to say that to us the user culture says you know i need to try it out first cuz i'm i'm afraid you're going to bail here's another one it's real simple it's uh, basically hey i don't want to get married <laughs> this is just a great arrangement for me you know an x there I, this is simple <laughs> don't get married Stop using the person and move on. Don't participate in that culture anymore. And then there's another one uh, that, that I hear very often that says, well, I know you're telling me that the Bible says this, but you yourself know that the Bible has multiple kinds of marriage and multiple versions of marriage, and so you know yourself, if you're being really honest, that what you're telling me is not the truth. That's actually a misunderstanding Of the narrative of the scriptures. And anyone who says that doesn't really know what they're saying and hasn't read the Bible at a deep enough level. Because Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the pattern. And in Genesis 1 and 2, there is a man and a woman, and God says, Be fruitful and multiply. And He gives them the gift of sex and says, It's a beautiful gift. I want you to enjoy. That's God's pattern. Genesis 3, we make decisions and say, I don't really like the pattern. I want a different pattern. And so from Genesis chapter 3 all the way till Jesus, you get every version of sexual expression you can possibly imagine. If you read Leviticus 18, it outlines everything you could possibly imagine. And because it's in the Bible, it's not mean that the Bible is saying it ought to happen. It's just saying it happened. So you get to Jesus, and in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus, and they ask him about marriage. And you know what he says? Don't you know how it was in the beginning? Genesis 1 and 2, the pattern. He says, it's, the, it's always been the pattern. You're the ones who came up with the other versions of it. And you won't find a reputable scholar of the Bible or a teacher of the Bible who will tell you different. If they do, they don't understand. So why in the world would I tell you this? Uh, Listen, I don't want you to be a sellout to the user culture. I'd love for you to experience the beauty of faithfulness and fidelity. If pornea means to sell, you know what faithfulness means and fidelity means? Not for sale. What the human heart needs to flourish is when someone says, I'm with you and this is not for sale. And I may not like you today, (laughs) but I'm going to stay with you today and tomorrow until death us do part. The prophet Hosea, he said that uh, in the Old Testament, he said people without understanding come to ruin. When you don't understand all this, you come to ruin and you get in the same scenario again and again. Why is this always happening? Well, you don't understand yet that it's not the way things were meant to work. And so we're in a position where we think everything is right and so we don't know what is actually right and nothing we think is wrong and that's actually what's wrong. And I want to save you from that. As your pastor. I want something better for you than that. So let me, let me just really quickly talk to just some specific groups of people. One I want to say to everybody. Because you may be thinking, oh, great, so if, I, if, I, if I'm living with someone, that means I'm not welcome here. See, I knew church does that. I knew church excluded people. No, 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 no. If you're excluded because of your sin, that means I'm excluded because of mine. The church always has been and always will be a hospital for sinful, broken people. You will always be welcome here if you've been married 14 times and you've lived with 10 different people. You are welcome here. We want you to find healing and we want you to live better, but you're welcome here. I love how John says this in 1 John in the New Testament. He says, listen, I'm writing this to you, dear children, so that you will not sin, but if you do, we have an advocate who speaks to the Father on our defense, Jesus Christ, who agape loves you, who agape loved you on a cross and said, I'll forgive you and you can start over. And he wants you to operate as one of his dearly beloved children. So if you're a couple and you're living together, um, I understand that it's a complicated thing. I get it. I, I don't have time to tell you stories of people who made the decision that, you know what, we're going we're gonna to follow God's example and not live in a user culture with regard to our sexuality, and it's really inconvenient for us, and it would be a lot easier if we just lived together, and financially, and all that I don't have time to tell you their stories, but on the back end of that story, they always say, I'm so glad I did it that way. And if you're, if you're living together and, and you're not married, um, move out. And guess what? I do weddings. <laughs> <coughs> I'll do your wedding. So does Tim. Tim. And then, then uh, just lastly, to, to single people, really, honestly, the church has missed it with single folks, and, and we've sent you a message, and where I've sent that message and where the church has sent you that message, I'm sorry, and, and the message we've sent to single people far too often is that you're better if you're married, and that marriage is somehow the ideal state for all humans. Listen, Jesus was not married. We follow a man who was single all of his life, Some scholars think the Apostle Paul was married. Most think that he wasn't. He wrote most of the New Testament. Listen, the world around you will tell you that the ultimate experience is to have sex. It is not. The ultimate experience is to be agape loved by somebody. And you don't have to be married to have that. You're not deficient because you can't find somebody. You won't be complete married people, am I right? Marriage does not make you complete. Is that true? <laughs> right? doesn't make you complete. You think it's, it's not gonna? And then to us as a church family, what if we just all embraced faithfulness? And we became a high-fidelity church. And, and it was so attractive, the way we lived, knowing that we're dearly loved kids. That people come in all the time who are living together because this is not a place where we heap shame on people, and they go, I'd love to have that. Let's get married. And I'd love that. I would love that for you. Well, I, I want to pray for you, and I, I want to I guide you through a real simple prayer exercise, and, and then we're going to be done. But here's what I'd invite you to do if you're comfortable, is if you would close your eyes, and, and if you do this just sitting down with your hands and your <coughs> palms down in a symbol of saying, God, I want to let some things go and let me, let me guide you through this. Uh, so we want to follow your example as dearly loved kids. And so, God, we want to let go of some things. We want to let go of some stuck ways of thinking some old lies that have kept us trapped for years about ourselves and how we can treat another person sexually, how we've bought in to the myth that we can use somebody and there are no consequences to it. We want to let that go. Thank you that when we sin, that we have someone who speaks on our defense. Thank you, Jesus. That you gave us the example on the cross of a, someone who gives himself up and you did that for us. And so now if you would turn your hands over just as a way of receiving. So God, we receive from you your grace for us where we are. Some of us, we feel like second-class citizens because we live together and then now we're married and we feel like maybe we messed something up. We receive your grace for that, that we're not, in a second, we're not in a second best with you. There's not a second best with you because you're always there and you're not second best. And you redeem anything. You bring beauty from ashes. And so we receive your grace. We receive the power of your Holy Spirit to come all the way down and all the way in And all the way through to make us into a person who no longer participates in the user culture. We need your help to do that. Every day. Pray this in your name. And everybody who wanted it said, Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand with me if you would. We send you out of here with a blessing every day. Every Sunday, if there's somebody you'd like to talk to, um, they'll be down front and they'd be happy to pray with you about anything. And, um, receive this blessing. May you know the love of God for you, no matter how broken you are. And may you know that you're sent from here to love God, to love people, and to serve the world, and let me marry you if you're living together. (laughs) See you next week.